every so often throughout the course of history, patriots rise up at a time of need for truth and freedom. These people are called disciples of liberty for their undying love of freedom. The call has been sounded. Will you answer that call or sit back and let freedom die away? Unifying patriots everywhere against the evil trying to destroy America's freedom. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty radio show on the America Out Loud Network. Now here's your host, Brian High. Hi there, and welcome to the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde, and you are listening to the America Out Loud Network. So glad you could join us today. I hope you'll take your time, do your due diligence to uh, pay attention to who the sponsors are of this and other programs on this network. Show support for them. Let them know that their message has reached your ears. And let's uh, continue boldly forward in the cause of freedom. You know, I'm sure if you are someone who is serious about maintaining your freedom and perhaps even helping to bring others along for the ride, uh, you've probably found yourself at some point trying to explain the importance of questioning the narrative, not just taking on face value anything that you're hearing from mainstream media. Now, hopefully I'm not landing on too many toes when I say this, but that would include even what you're hearing from Fox News. Occasionally, I mean, look, CNN will tell you the truth. Sometimes. So will Fox News. Sometimes. In fact, you can learn truth from any source, but it's on you and it's on me to be a sort of human truth detector that can tell when we're being manipulated or tell when someone is trying to to shade things, to keep us from looking in a particular direction. Case in point, just as an an example of of what this looks like, Um, right now in the USA, the fiat system is collapsing, economic recession is underway, and yet... Most media outlets are very desperate to keep our eyes focused squarely on Vladimir Putin, as if he is the most important thing that we should all be concerned about. So when you start to, to point this out to other people and you, you point out, you know, hey, this, this is not right, <laughs> this, is, this is deceptive or this is manipulative, it's easy to find yourself being dismissed or, you know, worst of, you're called a conspiracy theorist or you're, you know, you're the one who's out of step. And sometimes people will try to minimize it. I mean, um, if you're familiar with with Plato and uh, the uh, the allegory of of the cave, we're, we're going to actually talk about that a little bit later on in the program. But what we see doesn't always square with reality. And in Plato's allegory of the cave, you have prisoners who are actually chained down in a cave, and all they know about reality is flickering shadows that they see on the wall. They haven't yet realized there's a whole world outside the cave, and it's only those who actually find their way, first of all, free from their chains, and we're talking, you know, figurative mental chains, to to head upwards towards the sunlight. You think about what it's like when somebody starts to, to come out of darkness into light? It's painful, right? 
I mean, nobody comes out going, hey, this feels great. They're covering their eyes and they're, oh, this is painful squinting. I'd be better off to go back into the dark. But for those who successfully make their way out of the cave, who recognize not only was the cave a very limited version of reality, but there's a whole beautiful world that very few people are even perceiving right now. Most of the people who make that uh, that journey suddenly feel like, you know what, i got to go back and try to lead other people out of that darkness and out of their bondage as well. And not everybody wants to follow. Not everybody is interested in, in making that journey. But it's not just a difference of opinion in this case. When, when, when sophistry comes into play, and, you know, uh, Plato was, was big about, uh, you know, talking about the sophists who would argue with Socrates. And, and I guess to, to describe sophistry, it's people who can take words or take ideas and twist them to something that is false, but it sounds plausible or it sounds true. Politicians are brilliant at doing this. And if you want a good example of what that looks like, uh, I would say, for instance, uh, you've heard about the swimmer, Leah Thomas, who born a biological male, but now is just tearing up the NCAA uh, world uh, of women's swimming with these incredible records and, you know, taking championships. And it, But we're not supposed to remember or not supposed to, to acknowledge the fact that uh, biologically, uh, Leah Thomas is still sporting the uh, male tackle that she was born with. This is distressing to her teammates who say she doesn't cover herself up when, when she's changing. And, and I know I'm engaging in something kind of Orwellian and even says, wait, you're saying that she doesn't cover her male genitalia? I know it's the, the cognitive dissonance is strong <laughs> to even suggest such a thing. But you will find people who will defend it and say, well, you shouldn't be pointing this out. and Nobody should be questioning it. A trans woman is a woman. And you're not supposed to question this in any way, shape or form because well, the science isn't really settled on that. Oh, really? And this is where you'll start to see people engaging in sophistry. Well, are you a biologist? <laughs> do you do you even know, you know, what how to, how to really define a woman? And I think, oh, yeah, that's, you know, it reminds me of the trouble I got into the other day when I came home from the pet store. I was going to go pick up a puppy for our kid's birthday, but instead I brought home a giraffe. But, hey, I'm not a zoologist, <laughs> so, you know, who can blame me? So I have some hard news, and this is the hard news, and that is the mental manipulation that's being directed at us is real. It's not just a difference of opinion. It's not just a matter of, well, you know, that depends on what your definition of a woman is or whatever. No, there is manipulation being directed at us with the intent of enslaving our minds and, and worse, driving us toward destruction. Now, there are a few voices out there that have the kind of clarity that uh, Caitlin Johnstone has. Caitlin writes from Australia, and I think I've mentioned this before. On paper, you would think that uh, I would never line up with Caitlin Johnstone just because it's very clear. She is not a conservative right-wing commentator. And there are some views that she holds that are pretty, uh, uh, they're pretty left-wing. She's very anti-capitalism. And I don't know if she's really, you know, anti-free market or just anti-crony capitalism, because frankly, I'm anti-crony capitalism. There's things, she's very into uh, environmental causes and believes that, you know, human humanity is doing a lot to destroy the earth. But I can set aside those differences, and I might think that uh, she may be wrong on that, but then again, you know, I might be wrong too. The thing that I find about her is she is a truth seeker, and, and she is a truth speaker, and sometimes that lands her in a lot of people's hot water. She's hated by the left. She's hated by the right. 
I happen to love the girl because she just goes for the truth as best she understands it. And if we don't line up, that's okay. Because I don't see anywhere that she's saying, you have to believe this or you're a bad person. So with that in mind, let's talk about how we are being enslaved mentally and how it's driving us toward destruction. So when you run up against someone who says, hey, it's just a difference of opinion. You only want to hear what you want to hear in your echo chamber. No, no, no. Check this out. Caitlin Johnston says, you know that you're being actively propagandized about Ukraine by the mass media and by Silicon Valley. You can feel it in your guts. Everyone can feel it on some level. It feels gross. The split on this issue is between those who trust this gut feeling and those who choose to psychologically compartmentalize it away. Because if you don't compartmentalize away from it, the implications of this are very frightening because it means pretty much everything you've been told your whole life about the government, about your nation, about the news media, about the way the world works was a lie. But that is the basic reality. Now, if you've already seen this and recognized it, you're not going to experience cognitive dissonance when you observe it in the unprecedented imperial narrative management campaign that we're seeing right now with Ukraine. If you haven't seen it, you'll likely experience a lot of cognitive cognitive dissonance if you try to square your gut feeling that you're being propagandized about Ukraine with your belief that your favorite politicians and news sources always tell you the objective truth. And you will compartmentalize accordingly. Now, she's pointing this out not to to score ideological points, but simply to say, look, that's how we're wired. Our minds are wired to select for cognitive ease and forcefully reject information which challenges our present worldview. And pushing past the cognitive discomfort and facing reality is the only way to come to real understanding. So she gives a picture that's an example of this. And again, I I fully understand this is going to make some people uncomfortable, even hear it described. Because it's going to sound like, hey, you're on the side of the Russians. But consider what she's trying to say here. It's a picture of a Ukrainian president, Zelensky. And it's a, it's a cartoon, actually, of him, a caricature. But he's tearing open his shirt, Superman style. And sure enough, underneath that white shirt and tie and business suit is the Superman symbol, the S within a diamond. And, well, there it is. He's a superhero. This is a comic book tale. Now, she says, if this picture was printed out and framed and then used as a bludgeon to bash you in the face, whatever you looked at an electronic screen, she says that would feel how all this Ukraine war propaganda feels when you haven't swallowed the official narrative. It's that glaring of a realization. But she says, people get outraged when I say we're being aggressively propagandized about Ukraine, but this fact is not seriously in dispute. In fact, she says the mass media have been relatively straightforward about it, though, of course, they fail to mention their own role in that propaganda campaign. Now, it seems like those who are new to the concept think that propaganda means making up fictional stories, whole cloth, so they mistakenly assume that this is a claim that Russia never invaded and Ukrainians aren't dying and suffering. But all it really means is that the narrative framing is manipulated. They're not lying that there's a war. They're just manipulating the way people think about the war, how it's happening, who's to blame for it, whose agendas are served by getting it started and keeping it going, etc. I don't know, maybe you're still feeling a little bit of, uh, you know, a spike in blood pressure. Well, that still sounds like Russian propaganda, but what I understand her to be asking here is question all of it. 
And she points out, no good liar lies all the time. The best liars very seldom tell full-blown lies because they prefer to lie by omission or by distortion, by half-truth, by disproportionate focus, or by uncritically reporting other people's lies in a way that suggests that they're true. But it's all moving so fast now. Censorship and propaganda, the two arms of imperial narrative control, are escalating like nothing we have ever seen before. The doors on information control are being slammed and bolted shut all around the world just as fast as the empire managers can get away with it. Now, where she's from Australia, she says, of course, Australia is on the front line of this war against mental sovereignty. Here's an article from The Australian. Australia's media watchdog will be given new powers to crack down on harmful and misleading content on social media. If, if re-elected, the Morrison government will introduce new laws to Parliament that would provide the Australian Communications and Media Authority, or ACMA, with more regulatory power to counter misinformation and disinformation online. Under the proposal, the ACMA would be able to enforce industry codes and hold tech giants to account to remove harmful or misleading information online should voluntary efforts fail. And she says it's because of this intrusive, all this intrusive perception management that we're somehow simultaneously the closest we have been to nuclear war since the Cuban Missile Crisis, yet still collectively focused more talking about sports and celebrity gossip as though everything is fine and normal. Now she says this is something we could actually oppose if enough of us had unpolluted or enough unpolluted information about what's happening. This threat is not some inevitable force of nature that's happening to us. It's something that is being done to us by people, people with names and government offices. She says, if the nukes do start flying and we find ourselves in our final moments, will we, re- will we really feel okay about having done nothing about it? About failing to mobilize in favor of de-escalation and detente? About being the first species in history to go extinct due to psychological compartmentalization and a reluctance to annoy government officials? Caitlin Johnstone says the only thing sadder than watching the world die would be watching it die without having done anything to try to save it. Now, the saying that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism is directly related to people's inability to imagine anything other than increasingly aggressive escalations between nuclear powers in the competition-based systems we live under. People literally cannot imagine any deviation from this power struggle between nations, even if continuing along this trajectory means our complete annihilation. And it doesn't need to be this way. She says there's no good reason nations can't cooperate with each other for the good of everyone without trying to dominate each other. There's no good reason we can't move from competition-based models of domination to collaboration-based models of human thriving. I like the, she, she answers a, a tweet by Michael McFall, which says, if Putin truly believed his war was just, he would not be trying to prevent his citizens from knowing about it. And Caitlin Johnstone responds, if the U.S. empire truly believed its own war, its own role rather in this war was just, it wouldn't be unleashing unprecedented, unprecedented levels of censorship, blacking out Russian media, and propagandizing like it's already World War III. She says, Michael Parenti said years ago that the ultimate neocon plan, which today has simply become mainstream, mainstream orthodoxy on U.S. foreign policy, is a confrontation with disobedient governments, the ultimate target being China 
to ensure the supremacy of American global capitalism. But she says there's no good reason this needs to happen. There's no good reason the defensive Russia-China tandem described years ago by Gilbert Doctorow needs to be targeted in the way it's currently being targeted by this war that was deliberately provoked by Western powers. She says they're lying to you. They're lying when they say they tried to prevent this war. They're lying when they say de-escalation is impossible. They're lying when they say World War III is inevitable or is upon us already. She says peace and detente are still very possible. All that would need to happen is the dropping away of this notion that this planet of ours needs to be dominated by a single power structure. That's all we'd need for the threat of nuclear Armageddon to go away. That's all we'd need to ensure humanity's progress into the future. She says we can simply move from endless escalation to diplomacy, from diplomacy to de-escalation, from de-escalation to detente, from detente to true peace, and from true peace, true peace rather, to collaboration and human thriving. But the only thing that's stopping that from happening is this insane drive to dominate. And just in case you've missed the point here, she's saying don't believe the liars. Kind of a crazy thought, but I think she may be onto something here. And strike away, you know, you know, if you want to drop, there's things there you don't want to believe or don't want to agree with her on, that's fine. Again, she's not insisting you have to agree with all this, but I like to start from the idea that if, if in fact the politicians and the media sources are lying to me, which, come on, look at the last couple of years. How many lies were sold to us under the guise of, well, we're just trying to protect you from this horrible plague, this horrible pandemic? All the things that were stated as truth, masks are going to save lives, social distancing, lockdowns, oh, they're all saving lives, vaccines, so good we have to mandate it. And you should lose your job. And by the way, people are still losing their jobs in certain corporate settings because they're unvaxxed. This battle isn't over. But it really comes down to the collective versus the rights of the individual. And I don't care where a person is standing. If they, if they recognize this is what's happening and this is why we are being lied to and deceived, then we have some common ground. We have enough common ground that I think we can work out the other differences by opposing those who are doing the manipulating. So I want to introduce an idea to you, and this is not my idea, but it's the idea of we think of everything in left wing and right wing. And What if there was a different axis on which we could judge how a person is approaching their worldview, like an upwing and a downwing. This is an article from James Pethokoukos. And he starts with a quote from the movie Interstellar. We used to look up at the sky and wonder at our place in the stars. Now we just look down and worry about our place in the dirt. James Pethokoukos says, Imagine a 21st century politics that explicitly embraced rapid economic growth and technological process. Not as some sort of not as some sort of line goes up as good GDP fetish, of course, but because there are best ways to create wealthier, healthier, and a more resilient society for everyone. Not left populist middle out economics obsessed with redistribution, and not right populist economic nostalgia for 1960s industrial America. Now imagine such a forward and long termist politics of progress happening in 2022 America, right here, right now. What might that look like? Well, he says, kind of like the following, I think. 
Ezra Klein, liberal New York Times columnist, is worried that 1970s-era environmental regulation and thinking is blocking progress on some big issues, including housing affordability and clean energy. Derek Thompson of The Atlantic Magazine, another center-left journalist, has been touting an abundance agenda built around housing deregulation, more immigration, and more government research and development, among other things. Over in Silicon Valley, venture capitalist Mark Andreessen says it's time to build more housing, more domestic manufacturing, more university capacity, maybe even a hyperloop or two, with the effort aided by deregulation, increased investment, and a can-do attitude. And finally, here's one that I can agree with. Then there's Elon Musk, an entrepreneur who once described himself as half Democrat, half Republican. He's already innovating and building lots of stuff, electric cars, reusable rockets, and perhaps eventually lots of housing on Mars. So where do you put all of the above on the traditional left-right political spectrum? It's a good question, right? And if the answer isn't immediately obvious, then you need to recognize it's actually kind of a trick question. Because the politics of progress really isn't about left or right, it's about up. See, despite what cable news and social media tell us every day, the cultural, economic, and political divide that matters most for America's future is not left-wing versus right-wing. It never has been. Rather, the key divide that has always been most critical in shaping our everyday lives, our nation, and our world is upwing versus downwing. So here's how that fleshes out. A core claim of upwing thinking is this. A vibrant and resilient society is one with a firm belief that tomorrow can be better than today. That is, if we choose to make it so. An upwing society is a no-pain, no-gain society. It accepts the necessity of change, although sometimes really uncomfortable, as it strives to generate fast economic growth through scientific discovery, technological innovation, commercial innovation, and high-impact entrepreneurship. Upwingers are all about acceleration for solving big problems, effectively tackling new ones, and creating maximum opportunity for all Americans. So this is embracing three-dimensional politics. Now, The author here asks, can folks on the left be upwingers? Absolutely. In fact, from its earliest beginnings, the political progressive movement saw scientific and technological advances as the key to a more just society. As author and social activist Jack Jack London said, just after the turn of the 20th century, let us not destroy those wonderful machines that produce efficiently and cheaply. Let us control them. How about can folks on the right be upwingers? You bet. Principled conservatives should be as future-oriented as anyone. Society, as the conservative statesman and political theorist Edmund Burke wrote in 1790, is a partnership not only between those who are living, but between those who are living, those who are dead, and those who are to be born. Now, downwingers, on the other hand, see things a little bit differently. For them, stagnation is an immutable fact of American life. After all, living standards are supposedly no better today than 50 years ago, right? We live in a zero-sum society, and if faster growth were possible, it would merely benefit Silicon Valley uber-billionaire weirdos and harm the environment. Indeed, downwingers think that climate change is an existential threat that means rich countries must live more poorly. Downwingers can't imagine what jobs will replace the ones that robots will surely take. Americans exploring the solar system and beyond? Well, what a waste with so many problems right here on Earth! Plenty of downwingers all across the political spectrum. Now, from here, he goes into an explanation of where did this upwing thinking originate? 
I'll leave this to, to you to explore on your own time. I'll have a link in the show notes that you can, can check it out. But the bottom line is, do you have a more, a more pessimistic or a more optimistic view of where we could go from here? I can't answer for you. But if you're not looking up, this might be a good time to start. We can do better, especially in terms of productivity growth. We can break out of this rusty ideological cage. The shock of a lethal pandemic, the threat of a killer climate, the challenge of a rising geopolitical rival in China, the inadequacy of an economy that does too little for too many. I mean, all of this presents an opportunity for upwingers stuck in both downwing parties to present a vision of the future and to inspire the American people to make it happen. So start by looking up. Maybe some of us already are. And quit focusing so much on left and right. That's a dead end. This is the Disciples of Liberty on the America Out Loud Network. This is Dr. Peter McCullough. Do you know there's no other condition that I'm aware of where vitamins and supplements make such a big difference than COVID-19? We have an abundance of data that we need to be replete with a variety of micronutrients, and that includes vitamins, minerals, and other substances our bodies need. I rely on Healthy Cell Super Boost. That's Immune Super Boost. It's a, a gel pack that can be taken every day. I like to do it before I exercise and before I go out. It's a wonderful supplement. It gives me the Immune Super Boost that I need. Go to HealthyCell.com, use the promotional code OUTLOUD, and get a discount on your first order. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Because of COVID-19, many Americans worry about their health four times a day. That's 120 times per month. To minimize the worries, leading nutritional supplement company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost, an immune supplement that contains full effective doses of science-backed nutrients like vitamin C, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea all-in-a-one-a-day, pill-free, ultra-absorption ingestible gel. It tastes great, comes in a convenient squeeze gel pack, and it's more natural, too, without chemical binders, fillers, and coatings. Supporting a strong and resilient immune system can be simple. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of Immune Super Boost. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Now the spirit of American liberty and justice is woven into the soul of America Out Loud. Now we invite you, friends, to invest some of your time with our magnificent family of experts, their minds and voices. It's all back at AmericaOutloud.com. Liberty and justice for all. In today's world, there's no escaping the headlines filled with warnings about emerging viruses and dangerous superbugs. Genesis is the only technology that safely and effectively obliterates harmful pathogens both on the air and on surfaces. Genesis plus HOCL neutralize these threats to your environment in just seconds. Find out more about this amazing technology at genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a 15% discount. With Genesis, you'll be prepared for what's next.
Welcome back to the Disciples of Liberty. My name is Brian Hyde. I am happy to be with you here on the America Out Loud Network. I like to think of what I'm trying to do is to help people who are serious about reality, to strengthen their connection to reality in a world that is requiring us to reject reality at just about every turn. If you haven't read 1984, it might be time to dust off your copy and just go through and and just see if you can pick up on some commonalities that we have in our society today. And it's not to say that it's a direct translation. And my goodness, we live in Oceania and we have always been at war with East Asia or Eurasia, whatever the case may be. But when you hear about the inner workings of the party and how it exerted mental control over people, Orwell is very clear that the final command of the party was that you are to reject whatever your eyes and your ears are telling you and to believe only what the party says. This is illustrated brilliantly in the torture scene between O'Brien, who works for the party, and Winston, who is, uh, you know, the protagonist of the story. What is two plus two? As long as he answered that it's four, he was tortured, he was punished. No, two plus two is five. Well, how can you say that? We all know. How many fingers am I holding up, Winston? If he answered with the truth instead of what he was expected to say, you know, he was punished. Can you think of any parallels that we're seeing in our world right now? I think about a certain uh, Supreme Court nominee, not naming names, but uh, when she was asked, uh, can you define what a woman is? Here, this, I mean, this is an accomplished federal judge. She's not a dummy. However you may feel about her politics, she, she has uh, ascended to a pretty lofty place in terms of, you know, governmental uh, responsibility and, and achievement. Agree or disagree. You don't get there by being, you know, a room temperature IQ kind of person. But when this nominee was asked, well, can you define what a woman is? What is a woman? Well, I can't really say. Well, why not? Because I'm a, I'm a, I'm not a biologist. Oh, really? It's funny. I just saw a picture. Uh, someone had taken their kids to the Museum of Science in Boston. Said so the first time we'd been in a long time, and look what we found. And it was a display of human skeletons, and it was showing the difference between these skeletons. Well, let's see here. The one on the left is. Uh, Definitely taller, has a squared chin, straighter rib cage, and, uh, oh, what's this say? Male. Huh. Well, let's look at the shorter one here on the right. Rounded chin. I can't read the part about the rib cage, but uh, large, wide pelvis on the one on the right. The one on the left has a narrow pelvis. And I think these are legit skeletons. These, these are real human skeletons. But how 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 can how could they possibly they miss once one says male and the other says get me a biologist stat I mean you can just see the panic how long do you suppose this display is going to be you know still there in the museum before somebody says hey we got to get that out of there I mean this is scientific fact this is something that's been understood for millennia But today, because of wokeness, because, you know, Leah Thomas won a swim meet and, you know, we're not supposed to acknowledge that uh, she's uh, she's not exactly, you know, a naturally born woman. Hmm. I don't know. 
That's a good way to get yourself in trouble. I don't know. Maybe I'm skating on thin ice even to suggest such a thing. And yet there are people who say, well, it's just so divisive to point these kind of things out. What kind of a world is it where telling the truth or at least acknowledging the truth or let me put it a different way, refusing to participate in the lie is considered divisive. In fact, let me just go ahead and put my cards on the table. If I'm going to be a jerk, if, I, if I'm going to just be a complete butthead about this, let's, let's be really clear where I'm coming from. No one has the right to conscript you against your will, to draft you into their fantasy. Now, that's not the same thing as saying, well, therefore, you know, people who have gender confusion and, you know, guys running around in dresses or identifying as women, you should treat them poorly. You should threaten them or anything like that. I'm not saying that. I think you should treat people with with respect. In fact, I really believe the golden rule is the way to base your behavior. I think the way you treat other people should be the way that you yourself would want to be treated. I actually had the opportunity to put this to the test a couple of years ago. Went to a workshop for better angels. I think they're they're called braver angels now. But uh, one of the first things they did to kind of move me out of my comfort zone, I don't think this was deliberate. It just was the way that things played out was um, as, as part of that day spent with people who clearly would have a differing point of view than me was they sat me right next to a very clearly transgender individual. And when I say very clearly transgender, I mean it uh, was uh, a big tattooed former Marine that uh, was transitioning to a woman. And, you know, I, my first reaction was, oh, boy. You know, I knew that there might be some discomfort. I knew that, okay, this could, this could push the, the limits of, you know, how comfortable I am. But I really didn't think that it would start so, so quickly with just, and now you're going to sit next to this person. But the, the, the good part of it was through the course of that day, I had the chance to visit at length, in fact, to sit down and have lunch with, with Tisha. That was this individual's name. And in the course of that day, um, I came to understand that whatever, whatever was going on there, I had no need to assert that, well, you know, <clears throat> I'm better than you because I'm, you know, I'm still acting like the sex that I was born as and so forth. There was no need for dominance. And, and I have to say, one of the things which actually won my respect on the part of, of Tisha was that she never insisted, you do not misgender me. There, there was no looking for offense, no just looking to lord it over people. You will address me as this. It's ma'am, you know. Nothing like that. In fact, she was a pretty chill individual. And as it turns out, uh, you know, in talking with, with her, she has a great love for this country. You know, having served in the armed forces uh, before transitioning and, uh, you know, having having had skin in the game, so to speak, there was a great love for freedom. And also a strong aversion to, to the coercion and the, the ideological manipulation that so, so often defines the, the more militant parts of the LGBTQ community. I mean, this may sound a little bit hyperbolic, but I'm going to tell you, in many ways, I was like, I feel like I have more in common with this uh, transgender individual based on our conversations and actually just sitting down and treating each other like human beings than even with some of the people who ostensibly were conservatives like me, you know, who'd been invited to show up to this workshop. 
There were some of the conservatives there that I was like, ah, you know, I, I, I can't agree entirely with what they were saying. And that's, that's not a bad thing. That's not to say they were bad people. The point is, sometimes we allow things to, to divide us. And, and, and the, the big takeaway that I, that I came away with as far as how this, this affected the way that I look at people who are dealing with these gender issues and it's only my opinion because I'm I'm not a psychologist. So, is there? I think that uh, there was some trauma, and I mean serious, serious trauma, that was being manifest in in how this person was dealing with uh, things that had happened to them earlier in their life. Now, to me, that doesn't denote you know cause for um, you know judgment or condemnation. I think we ought to show exactly as much compassion as we would want if we were the one who was trying to work through something very traumatic. But having said that, I just, I bristle when people say, well, you can't say that or you can't acknowledge this. No one, no one can point out that the emperor is wearing no clothes. We're supposed to pretend that this is all normal and this is all great. Yet I would say, no, it's, it's kind of like it's a war against reality. And if you are being told, well, you can't acknowledge reality. And here are the reasons why reality isn't really reality. There's that sophistry we were talking about in the last segment. It's insensitive. And, it's, and, and who are you? Who are you to say what is reality and what isn't? Well, let's just boil that right down to what it really amounts to. If there's no such thing as objective truth, if a person really can't stake a claim on reality and say, this is where I'm going to base my thinking... If there is no such thing as reality, then the only thing that remains is power. And that means might makes right. Whoever's got the most power at their disposal, they shape reality because what they say is what goes. Refusing to go along with someone who's trying to exercise power over you, whether it be physically or in particularly mentally, there's nothing wrong with that. There's no, no reason to be ashamed. But you'll see people being deplatformed, punished, shouted down, you know, and, and otherwise canceled by cancel culture simply because they refuse to participate in the lie. If you ever get the chance, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, uh, one of his greatest essays was Live Not the Lie. And he talks about how, you know, there, there's always going to be falsehood. There will be lies that will come. And he says, let the lie come into the world. Let it even prevail, but not through me. So if you wonder, where do I have power to, to turn, you know, the tide on something like this? Well, you're not going to set everybody else straight, nor should you want to, right? I mean, you want to show by example, or if you want to show by your illumination, you know, that there is a better way so that people might be persuaded to voluntarily take steps in that direction. That's a great thing to do. But it can only be, be done when you are making the conscious decision that you will not participate in the lies. You won't repeat them. You won't use the the same language. And I, I get it. You know, I was talking about Tisha and calling her she and so forth. That was purely out of respect for this individual. And yes, it's accommodating. But it's a very different kind of accommodation than from, well, you know, but I was told I would be a bad person if I didn't do this. So, yeah, I checked my pride and I checked my need to be right on this for the sake of this individual, simply because I was asked nicely and not told, you will do this. 
And maybe I made the wrong choice. My conscience doesn't feel like I did, but hey, if yours tells you something different, I'll let you work that out for yourself. I guess the bottom line is we've got to figure out how to navigate a time where we are actively being prevented and discouraged from acknowledging reality. In fact, I want to talk a little bit about uh, uh, shattering the screen of unreality. Now, this is an article by Amina Milanic. I picked this up off AmericanGreatness.com. The subtitle, We Have to Reject the Form of Life that Has Been Thrust Upon Us by the Media and the Digital World. Now, I like that uh, Emina Milanic actually starts with a reference to Plato's Republic and the allegory of the cave. So, I laid a little bit of groundwork for this earlier. Now, we'll come back to it. She says, in Plato's Republic, we witness a dialogue between Socrates and Glaucon in which Socrates presents his arguments about reality and knowledge. And it's one of the most famous parts in the Republic, known as the allegory of the cave. In order to show the importance of education, Socrates tells a story about a group of people who are chained in a cavern, unable to turn around, who only see shadows that are projected on the wall by the exhibitors of puppet shows, who are also isolated from the prisoners in the cavern. Since the prisoners are kept from seeing the real world, they deem reality to be nothing else than shadows of artificial objects. Now, these prisoners are half-human at best. They are kept in the dark, as it were, and not only unable to fulfill their potential, but also have no means to communicate with one another or the world outside of the cave about the unreality they witness. The illuminating power of reality is lost to them. In order to know and to be awakened, the prisoners must be able to move their bodies first and then tend to their souls by way of education. For Socrates, a life in such darkness is no life at all. And while the masses may be content with living like this, it is a philosopher's task to bring about his own illumination and insight by goading such confrontations with it out of others. Now, before I go any further, I just have to say, this, this was a long time ago, and this is thousands of years ago, that Plato was making this case that, well, you know, part of what these people see as reality is just images flickering on the wall. I mean, as you look over at your flat screen TV, does any of that, you know, strike an interesting little note in your soul? Like, ooh, how many people today, how many of the masses are in thrall to those flickering images on the wall of their cave? Even though it may be a nice cave with a comfortable place to sit, how many of them sit there night after night after night, passively absorbing whatever's coming out of that flat screen? Just an interesting thought. He was very prescient about this. Now, the author here says Plato's allegory of the caves has been used quite frequently in our culture. And one of the reasons for this is because the text is perennial and it maintains that human nature does not change, despite the passage of time. Now, Plato's dark cave is even more appropriate because we are living in the midst of digital shadows imposed on us. There's a never-ending repertoire of ideological puppet shows brought on by the corrupt media, ideologues, and their political regimes. And while they keep people in the cave, they also use them both as participants in and spectators of their plans. We're part of the gladiator spectacle, where one day you are in the ring, another day you are the spectator. That is, if you let your life devolve into that. Now, we are indeed living in the shadows and stuck in the same pattern of unreality. 
The Covidian ideology may or may not be over, but for now, what's occupying the gladiatorial ring is the strange war and crisis in Ukraine and Russia. And it's almost impossible to find reliable information. And this problem is exacerbated by the so-called discourse on the subject that runs purely on the engine of collectivism. Just like COVID, no one is allowed to ask questions and all must accept what the media presents as the most valid representation of reality. Even showing compassion toward the innocent people of Ukraine is not enough. One must accept the simplistic binary of existence, which doesn't allow for questions and discussions. And maybe, maybe, you know, in my earlier segment, you were one of the people saying, Brian, you sound a lot like a Russian stooge, or you're, you're just repeating Russian misinformation. When in reality, all I'm doing is questioning the dominant narrative and asking, can you believe any of the sides at this point? I know, it's an uncomfortable place to be. None of us enjoys bumping up against the limits of our mental universe, but here we are. And if you can't ask questions, if you cannot have discussions, if you can't reason about what you're being told, maybe what you're being told isn't really in your best interest. Back to the article. She says, as with COVID, some are questioning nothing and accept the reality that's been projected on the cave wall for them to consume. Now, others will go to the other extreme and reject everything happening in Ukraine is completely fake. And people fall into this trap because they're trying so hard to prove their point. But the point is the shadows in this cave are rather large and continue to grow. In addition, and again, just like with COVID, we see the emergence of capitalist commodification of crisis. So here's an example. Fashion designers are having socially conscious fashion shows. Now, can you see a bigger contradiction here? It's astounding such irony is tolerated. Is there anything further from the reality and suffering and war than the frivolity of a fashion show? Even if they're all dressed in bright blue and yellow, look at us, we're showing our solidarity. Various companies are hashtagging away with stand with Ukraine as people do on social media. And these companies are trying to make a profit by demonstrating that they're aware and concerned. She says this, I should hasten to add, is no less true of companies who peddle conservative ideology in order to sell their products. Why should we, the consumers, trust any of them? And why should we be swayed to buy a product which has nothing to do with an ethical act of actually doing something productive just because its marketers are also peddling a popular opinion about the current thing? This is an economic paradox. A collectivist society that's basing its existence on Chinese Marxism is engaging in capitalist commodification of crisis in life. Yet it's happening. And finally, just like with COVID, users of social media have taken it upon themselves to change their profile pictures with appropriate signs to indicate which side they're on. Do you have a Ukrainian flag on your Twitter account? Well, you'd better. Because if not, it means that you are against us whoever us may be. She says it reminds me of the Seinfeld Seinfeld episode in which uh, Kramer was participating in an AIDS walk but refused to put on the red ribbon. Despite the fact that Kramer was in full support of battling AIDS, he was beaten and kicked because he found the ribbon to be superfluous to what he was intending to do. Now, there's nothing wrong with solidarity, especially when it comes to recognition of human suffering and a need for justice. But these kinds of hashtag politics have nothing to do with freedom of the mind. They are purely coercive in nature. 
So the events may change, but the pattern is still the same. We are still seeing digital shadows, and to add to the problem, most of the media figures are doomers. Many people join the terrible chorus of a very limited repertoire. Such songs include, It's Going to Get Worse. Are you paying attention yet? We are doomed. And of course, that all-time favorite, Let That Sink In. Discourse has devolved into a bunch of cliches driven by algorithmic clicks. Not only is this destroying the language, but it's also damaging our ability to communicate with each other. It is an impediment to man's belonging in the world. Now, what Plato's puppeteers did and what our reality manipulators are engaging in is relativism. The more chaos there is, the more ideology there is. The more crises, the more confusion. And the puppeteers hope, the puppeteers hope rather, a complete abandonment of truth and objectivity. The ideologues are relying on one notion that people will accept, namely that there is no objective reality. So it's not only truth that's under attack, but also the truth with a capital T. Lemming-like humans will follow what lemmings do. As Jorge Luis Borges noted, and I paraphrase, some people are happier when they're living under a totalitarian system. But what we have to pay attention to is whether the thinking person is being broken down, succumbing to the unreality that's presented before us. Now she says, look, often reality is unpleasant. And I'm not merely talking about pleasure. Rather, what is at stake here is the very meaning of being human. If we do not consider knowledge and enlightenment of the spirit and mind to be significant, then how can we expect to move beyond the dark screen of unreality? One of the things that makes us human is love. Now, she says, I don't mean anything saccharine by this, and I'm certainly not thinking of the live, laugh, love variety. Love requires action and responsibility but it also requires reality itself. In his book, Love Alone is Credible, Swiss theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar writes that the inner reality of love can be recognized only by love. In the midst of what appears to be relativism on steroids today, this is something we must keep remembering. What is the path that we are choosing? Now, Amina Milonik says, look, these repetitive forces rely on the demolition of truth, Love, goodness, beauty, and everything else that makes us human. We have to reject the form of life that's been thrust upon us by the media and the digital world. Such a form runs contrary to the living, breathing spirit that is within us and that yearns for creation and hope, even as we're cognizant of evil. We have to get out of the cave and shatter the screen of unreality. Isn't that an interesting take? Again, I'll have a link to this in the show notes and I hope that you will take a, take a good look at it. I want to share one more thing with you here. And this is, this is just to, to illustrate the, the kind of uh, detach from reality that has become normalized in our world. And I found this actually, you know, I don't want to sound like, you know, I'm telling you, on the one hand, it's good to, to break out of, uh, it, it's, it's great to break out of the, uh, you know, the digital prison that, that we've had set up for us. But on the other hand, I find a lot of really good thought on Twitter. So, you know, if it sounds like I'm singing the praises of Twitter, yeah, I suppose I kind of am in, in the sense that, uh, that uh, sometimes you will find something that's, that's worth your time. But this was, uh, this was a fascinating um, thread from Twitter 
particularly regarding the, the whole transgender issue. And it's from, uh, I, I can't remember the name of the poster. It's like uh, the, the Woke Burrito. That's, that's their Twitter handle. Please, you know, don't laugh. But here's what this person says. Tell me if this makes sense. When people say trans women are women, I don't think most of them actually believe it. Some of them say it because they're afraid not to say it. Others say it because they love making others afraid of not saying it. In a way, the whole, the whole trans women are women sort of functions as a tool for social control. It's almost like a religious sacrament, a pledge of allegiance and submission. When you say it, you prove you are willing to abandon the truth to either achieve or keep your in-group status. You're letting others know you won't be trouble. You won't question anything no matter how absurd anything gets. You're a true believer. The emperor's new pantyhose look amazing to you. Now, if you have authoritarian tendencies... Trans women are women must seem incredibly appealing. I mean, imagine having the power to get other people fired for not believing in false statements. Two plus two equals five, and anyone who disagrees is a bigot and should lose their job. Can you imagine having that power? Well, a lot of people have that power right now. It's like that part in 1984. How many fingers, Winston? Stating the correct number of fingers gets you punished. Accepting the falsehood get you rewarded. So here are two claims. A, humans cannot change their sex. B, humans can change their sex. Now, claim A is objectively true, but if you say it, it could get you fired. Claim B is objectively false, but it might get you hired if you toe the line. So when people say trans women are women, it's useful to remember that a lot of them don't actually believe that. They either say it out of fear and compliance or in order to remind you that they have power over you. But what's the big deal? Why can't you just be nice and play along? Because if they can make everyone submit to this foolishness, it eventually becomes a religion as even children are raised into believing this sacred thing that no one can question. And it has consequences. When we establish false premises we will inevitably run into false conclusions and contradictions. Bad policies will ensue. Women will find themselves housed in prisons with male inmates. Women's sports will become an outright farce. And this has already happened, as as we've seen. But most importantly, adopting these falsehoods under social coercion will outright distort our very relationship with reality itself. This isn't just a false empirical claim about reality where new evidence could theoretically overturn the verdict on truth. This is about messing with conceptual truths like 2 plus 2 equals 4. When definitions of words and concepts can be changed prescriptively to overnight to shape and to reshape reality, we not only lose our ability to speak, but our ability to think. If they can make you believe men can get pregnant... They can make you believe anything. Most people don't believe such statements, yet an alarming number of them are willing to pretend that they do. Where do you think we end up with that? They're already teaching such statements to children at school. And you better believe those kids don't get to ask questions or disagree. Because these statements aren't even presented to them as empirical claims, but as moral ones. We are witnessing the birth of a new religion. I think that's really well stated. And I'm just going to add a little icing on top of this, if you don't mind. 
when you are required to ignore reality, to put something above reality, I cannot question this because it is uh, it is above reality, and therefore, you know, reality cannot be applied to it. What you're doing is you are engaging in a form of modern idolatry. Now, maybe that's only going to matter to people who believe in God, you know, who believe in that commandment, thou shalt have no idols or graven images, you know, no gods before me. Well, if you're putting something above reality to where it just simply cannot be questioned, maybe that's exactly what's going on. My goal here isn't to make you uncomfortable, although I'm pretty sure that at some level I've, I've, I've caused a bit of discomfort. But more than anything, I want to reassure you that if you are one of the people who has, has felt the coercion, felt the pressure, you know, the twisting of your arm, either figuratively or literally, to state things as truth that are not true, or to ignore truths that are right there in front of you, but you're not allowed to acknowledge them because, because that would not be woke, that would not be inclusive, that would be considered divisive, and besides, you're not going along with what I'm telling you to think. You've probably been made to feel like you are alone and you are the one who is out of step and you are the one who is the problem. I just want to assure you that's not the case. You are very much on firm ground, even if it feels like you are standing alone. And I want to commend you for your courage. Hold your ground. Stay tethered to reality. It matters more than you know. This is the Disciples of Liberty on the America Out Loud Network.